Why are academics so bothered that 600,000 left Mitzrayim? Are population numbers in the Chumash meant to be literal? And why are biblical scholars so bad at reading the Torah? I'm Avi Cohen. I'm Mati Cohen. And this is Jewish Thought Flow. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Jewish Thought Flow. This is your host, Avi Cohen. Today, we will be speaking about the number of Jews who left Mitzrayim uh, during Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. So we know in our tradition there are 600,000 men from the age of 20 to 60 who left Egypt. In reality, how many people left Egypt? It's hard to tell. We don't know what the ratio of men to women were. We don't know what the ratio of men to children were. Uh, the Pasuk tells us that 600,000 men of fighting age left besides for the, the women and children, also besides for the, anybody who's over the age of 60. We can probably estimate it around a million and a half to two million. I think those would be reasonable. It could be less. It could be a little more. We don't know exactly. And this number is explicitly stated in the Pusik. So this is in Shemais. Vayisu b'nei Yisrael, me'ramseis, su'kaisa, kishesh me'as elef ragleg varm levad mitaf. That when b'nei Yisrael traveled from Ramses to Sukais, they were 600,000 besides for the children. These numbers are also confirmed in two senses, which took place in the Midbar. One at the beginning of the 40 years and one at the end. The first one, which is in Shemais and repeated in Bamidbar, ends up with a total of 603,550, and the one in the 40th year is 601,730, also in Bamidbar, in Parachavav. So from these numbers, we see that the Torah is explicitly telling us, in multiple different ways, that the number of Jews that left Mitzrayim and were in the Midbar were 600,000 men, give or take a few thousand. Now, we've all also been a Pesach Seder, where... The entire tradition of the Yitzhiya Mitzrayim story is given over. That's the chiv of the night. Uh, and we've all heard the number, 600,000 Jews left Egypt. We also know that that you know, represents the, the uh, general number, population number of Klaistrol. There's a Kabbalistic ideas uh, that there are 600,000 root souls. So 600,000 has always been associated with the amount of Jews who left Egypt. Now, at that same Seder, most of you probably have that one son. Who will ask the question? I'm not going to say which son it was, but he'll ask, 600,000? That seems mighty, mighty amounts of people to leave Mitzrayim. Do we have any evidence of it? After all, I lived my entire life based purely on extreme evidence of all claims. Now, this is the modern version of the Russia Mao Omer, where he throws doubt on the story, uh, particularly the detail of 600,000, which, again, is, is a large amount of people, right? It's a, it's a population of a large city in the U.S. Uh, who left uh, Egypt. Now, this Russia doesn't always come in the form of a non-believer. Uh, unfortunately, there are believers um, who are, can be called loosely believers. Uh, they're maminim ve'inam They believe, but they don't really believe. Uh, and they also hold that this 600,000 number is just too difficult for the rational mind to comprehend or to accept. Uh, and here are the problems that they put forth. So, again, very similar problems, both from the believer and from the non-believer. Um, but we'll see how the believer still maintains his belief in Torah. So to make it easier on the listener, we broke the problems into two main uh, streams. One would be the archaeological problems, and the other one will be the mathematical problems, but we're going to get to them soon. So archaeology, for those of you who don't know the field, archaeology is basically the learning of history, not through um, historical writings, but through digging up the ground, right? So trying to find physical traces of um ancient civilizations, 
uh, and trying to infer from the finds of those digs uh, for the population sizes, for wars that went on, for famine, disease, all sorts of information that you can gather from the raw evidence that you dig up from the ground. So the problem is, is there's a lack of archaeological record, both of slaves leaving Egypt, uh, but also a large population traveling through the desert. So let, let's just use the number 2 million people. You're talking about 2 million people going through a desert for 40 years. Seemingly, that should leave some sort of trace. They've, you know, dug up a lot of places in the desert, and they have not found any trace of 2 million people going through the desert for that time period. Right. I mean, my, my baby's 7 months old. I think we go through like 4 or 5 diapers a day. I mean, multiply that by the 400,000 kids that we're suggesting they had. That, that's a lot of diapers to be left in the, tri- in, in the desert every single day. Plus, we all know how notoriously messy Jews are in public places. Assumedly, somebody would have found a Lieber's chip bag just laying there in the middle of the desert. So where is all those chip bags? So the second problem is that the Psukim describe in a couple of different places that the Jews were the smallest nation. For example, in Devarim, Hashem doesn't love you and didn't choose you because you're greater and bigger than all the nations, because you guys are, in fact, the smallest of the nations. Now, based on estimates of population sizes back in the days, 600,000 men of fighting age would have been a tremendously large population of a nation. Now, how could the Pasuk tell us that the Jews were the smallest among the nations if they actually had 600,000? That would land them among the biggest of the populations. Now, in a similar vein, the third problem that this suggests is that the Psukim say that Hashem did not want to wipe out the, Jew, the, the, excuse me, the nations in Canaan very quickly because then the Jews would not have been able to inhabit Eretz Yisrael very quickly because they didn't have enough men to fully inhabit Eretz Yisrael, and the wild animals and, and you know, uh, uncivil, civil unrest would surround the land because you didn't have enough people to populate it. Now, again, based on the population estimates that we have of the time, the nations of Canaan did not number that many, and 600,000 men of fighting age, which the Jews had, would have easily been able to populate all of Eretz Yisrael. So from these psukim, internally, would seem to suggest, according to their estimates, that the Jews were in fact much smaller than 600,000 men of fighting age. Now, I know you might be asking, well, I understand the Torah, which is telling us they were the smallest, and the Torah, which is telling us that it would be a problem for them to fully inhabit the land of Israel, is also the one that told us that there are 600,000 men of the fighting age of 20 to 60, and close to 2 million of the total population. Now, this is a very strong point. So obviously, uh, those who want to say that, the, who want to believe in the Torah, yet have a problem with the number 600,000, will have to read those census numbers differently or do something with them, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Okay, so being as most of these questions were based on the archaeological record, I think it's time for us to take a little bit of a closer look um, as to the method of archaeology uh, and what are some of the underlying assumptions and how good exactly are they at finding things. Now, the accuracy of their findings and the amount that they find is very closely related to the conclusions you can come up with from the field of archaeology. So, for example, if, if I found a hammer in the ground, okay, from a certain time period, the most accurate statement I can make is they had a hammer during that time period, because that's what I found. For me to say, well, they must have had nails is already a bit of an extension, because, well, they only found a hammer. Now, that might be a very reasonable extension, but it's still an extension. Now, if I say, well, I found a hammer, so it must be they had nails, and they had boards, and they probably built houses, um, 
those are further extensions. Again, might be reasonable, might not. But if I then go and say, well, based on the hammer size, uh, it must be the biggest house they ever built was a thousand square feet because with, you know, you need more tools than just a hammer to build anything bigger. That's already a bit of a leap that person goes, well, wait a minute, maybe tomorrow you'll find, uh, you'll find a nail gun and that will help you realize that there's much larger houses that can be built. Now, very unlikely to find a nail gun from 3000 years ago, but imagine if somebody was digging up our population today and only found a hammer. Uh, so obviously, the amount you find is very much related to the type of conclusions you can make about a certain period. Now, the way archaeology works is it's really um, lack of evidence is what's telling. So for example, if I have a video camera taking a video of a room, um, and I want to prove that somebody was never in that room, and, I ha and he said he was there on Tuesday, and I say, no, you weren't. And I have video camera of the entire day Tuesday and every part of the room. Okay, if I look at that video camera and don't see him there at all on Tuesday in any part of the room during any part of the day, I can conclusively say, well, you were not there because I have footage of the whole thing. Now, granted, maybe you can say the footage was tampered with or all the things, but those are already a little less reasonable. But let's say I had a camera that took pictures or videos of 1% of the room and it was only on for 1% of the day. And a person comes to me and says, I was there Tuesday. And I go, well, in my part of the video, which covers 1% of the time and 1% of the place, I don't see you. Obviously, that would not be reasonable to rule out that that person was in the room. Because again, our knowledge of the area would be very, very limited. So that's the question. In archaeology, they make it sound like they found everything. And therefore, they can say, well, when I sift through all that evidence, I don't see the evidence for what you want. In reality, it's more that they found less than 1% of less than 1% of the area. So, so instead of these hypotheticals, let's give a real-world example where they didn't just miss, you know, a guy walking into a room, but they, in fact, missed an entire empire. So this comes from an article in the Smithsonian magazine. One of the harder magazines to pronounce, apparently. <laughs> Especially if you have a lisp. Um, and this is from 2021, so it's not, uh, it's not very old, right? It's December 2021, so it's just a couple of months ago. An archaeological dig reignites the debate over the Old Testament's historical accuracy. So, the article follows Erez Ben Yosef, who was an archaeologist. And he was doing a dig in a site that, until that point, it was confirmed archaeological fact. That it was an ancient Egyptian mine. Now, mine, excuse me. Now, the original theory was that it was Shlomo Malk's copper mine, dating to around 1000 BC, and that stuck for about 30 years until Benno Rothenberg, upon further digging, uncovered an Egyptian temple, complete with hieroglyphics, cat figurines, car face of Egyptian deities, and based on that, they linked the copper mines to an earlier Egyptian period. So you already see, so they have one theory, then they find something else, and they come up with another theory, so now it's linked to an Egyptian period. This re-identification further cemented the school of thought popular in archaeological circles known as minimalists. They contended that there is no evidence of any large Israelite kingdom in around 1000 BC. So one of the archaeological, uh, let's say, main theories is that this whole um, empire of Shlomo Melech, which is spoken in such glowing terms throughout Nach, actually never existed. Um, and they make this conclusion based on the fact that they really haven't found so much evidence of an empire. Now they find this mine and they said, well, it must be Egyptian because we found, I guess, an Egyptian temple inside. Now, and their assumption was because organized kingdoms as large as David and Shlemimelech's should have left significant settlements and buildings, um, but in... The, the area during that relevant time, they didn't find any buildings or settlements or evidence in writing. Uh, basically, they didn't find evidence for Shlaim and David and Melech's kingdom. So this Ben Yosef found 
just a couple, I think 11 uh, pieces of pottery, which he sent to be carbon dated to see exactly which period they're from. Are they from this ancient earlier Egyptian period? Uh, just when are they from? And it came back dated to exactly 1000 BC, which is David Melech and Shalom Melech's kingdom. As they continued to dig, they found bones of fish from the Mediterranean, which is 100 miles away, and evidence of other delicacies that were not native to the area. Murex dyed cloth, for example. But what was most shocking was that they found at sites around the world. So in other words, they found things here, which were from very far away. But then in archaeological digs randomly around the world, for example, in Greece, they found cauldrons whose metal was sourced in those very mines, which are over 900 miles away. Egyptian palaces of that period in the year 1000 BC, again, during Shalom Melch's reign, also had metals sourced in this Timna mine. This proved that not only were the mines in use during that period, but they had the capacity to sell their products all over the world and had a fully established and complex operation at the mine. The problem was, as we mentioned, no evidence of any empire, major cities, or even anything that could even be called a town was found in that time period. So they're assuming there's pretty much nothing going on here in the year 1000, yet those mines were sending metal all around the world up to 100,000 miles away. Now, you have to uh, keep in mind that this site for 40, 50 years was absolute archaeological fact that this is an Egyptian site, no relation to the period of Davon Shalom Melech, and nothing of that complexity was in the land of Israel at that time. If you had asked one of these uh, academics, one of these archaeological researchers, what do we know about the area? Is there any evidence of large civilizations? Are there any evidence of large, complex operations? They would have said, absolutely not. That's crazy. Anybody with any sort of knowledge of archaeology understands that these areas were basically barren wastelands during that time period. All that changed 40 years later. When they accidentally found just 11 pieces of pottery, which they managed to date to this time. Now, this and one second, and from those 11 pieces of pottery, they inferred that it's a very, very complex and large operation that was going on. So I always give the example, it would be like if you found one iPhone. So granted, there's only one iPhone, but if you find an iPhone, you can infer a lot of things that suggest a lot of complexity. If you find an iPhone, you know there's iPhone factories, somebody's producing this, there's people buying it, there's technology to support the the uh, the the network and all that. So there are finds that show great complexity. The amount of sophisticated um, uh, delicacies from around the world and the fact that it had the shipping capability for over a thousand or around a thousand miles away from that mine shows you that this was a complex organization, a complex operation uh, that was being sent all over the world. Right. So now here's how this article concludes. This led Ben Yosef to realization of one of the fundamental flaws with archaeology. Archaeology assumes that if the thing existed, it will leave an imprint to be found by later discoverers. But here, we had an entire advanced civilization that for all purposes had vanished, and without this one dig in the mines, no evidence of them would exist at all. Ben Yosef theorized that the assumption is based on the idea that advanced civilizations need to live in large, permanent structures, easy to find by archaeologists. However, there are known civilizations, such as the Mongols, that lived in tents, and the Mongols were numbered in the millions and millions, but... You don't have archaeological evidence of them because, again, tents don't leave a large archaeological uh, stain. Now, this is his theory as to why they can't find more. Obviously, the, even these things they only found accidentally have to find in archaeology are accidental. It's very possible you could find them, and they just haven't yet. But he's given a theory that, hey, we may even be looking for something that doesn't exist because there is no evidence left because the way they live does not lend itself to being lasting for thousands of years to be found by us. Now, if you think striking out and missing an entire complex mind structure with the underlying infrastructure to back that up 
was bad enough. Uh, this was not archaeology's first swing and a miss. Now, you have to remember, swing and a miss is fine. The problem is, is when you claim you hit a home run before we found out you struck out. That's where it gets really problematic. When you claim we know what this is and then you swing and a miss on an entire mining structure, that's pretty embarrassing, but it also lends, it, it lowers the credibility. So when you come to me and say, I know what I'm talking about, and I say, well, you didn't know what you're talking about before, uh, so that obviously lowers the credibility. But this wasn't the first swing and a miss. So for the longest time, archaeologists held that um, that in Syria during, I think it was around 2500 BC, there wasn't any possibility for any large cities until they stumbled upon a city called Ebla. Now, Ebla had around 250,000 to 300,000 inhabitants, something they thought was impossible at the time. And again, like all other things, it was found accidentally. And then once they uncovered it, they had to readjust their estimations of the time. So before impossible to have a city that big. Once they accidentally found it, okay, I guess it is possible to have a city that big. Not only that, they missed out on the entire Hitti Empire. So we know in the Torah, the Hittim are mentioned, it's the Hittite Empire. Uh, prior to them finding it in the 1970s, they thought this entire empire didn't exist. In fact, it was one of the leading reasons why people held the Chumash was historically inaccurate, because the Chumash talks about a Hitti Empire during that time period, and they never found it. Well, they found it. So that tells you that they were sure the entire empire didn't exist, and then it was found. I don't think it's such a hard stretch to say, well, maybe you will find evidence that 600,000 Jews left Egypt. The fact that you haven't yet doesn't mean anything. Right, so let's take it specifically to Egypt. So this is a quote from Joshua Berman's book, Ani Mamen. It's on page 44 through 45. There's a limit to what we can expect from the written record of ancient Egypt. 99% of the papyri produced there during the period in question have been lost and none whatsoever have survived from the eastern Nile Delta, the region the Terra claims the Jews resided. So, from an archaeological standpoint, the question, why don't we find archaeological evidence of it? Well, you haven't found a single piece of paper from that time, and I'm not sure how much of the archaeology you found at the time, but you're not going to find archaeology of Jews leaving. You'd find either manuscripts of Jews leaving, or something of the sort. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. He continues, In fact, many major events reported in ancient writings are archaeological invisible. The migrations of Celts in Asia Minor, Slavs into Greece, Armenians across the Levant, all described in written sources, have left no archaeological trace. Zero. And this, too, is hardly surprising. Archaeology focuses upon habitation and building. Migrants are, by definition, nomadic. There is similar silence in archaeological record with regards to many conquests, whose historicity is generally accepted, and even of many large and significant battles, including those of relatively recent vintage. The Anglo-Saxon conquest of Britain in the 5th century, that's only 1,500 years ago, 1,600. The Arab conquest of Palestine in the 7th century. Even the Norman invasion of England in 1066, only 1,000 year, years ago, all have left scant, if any, archaeological remains. So th this is one big problem with archaeology, which is uh, they find very little, um, and they deduce and assume a lot, and then when they find one more piece... Uh, it generally contradicts their assumptions, but then they just make brand new assumptions with the same bravado and confidence they made the previous assumptions with. The other problem with archaeology is a lot of them work within the same milieu uh, of theories. So we're going to do a podcast on the, actually, the archaeological evidence for Yetzirah Mitzrayim, and one of the biggest problems stopping them finding things uh, is not that they haven't found things that really do corroborate the story. In fact, they have. The problem is, is the chronology is a little bit off. So they'll find, you know, 
uh, Yerichai, and they'll find evidence of walls falling suddenly, uh, uh, suddenly down. They'll find evidence of fire. They'll find evidence of large invasion. Yet, it's 200 years off, so they just write it off as no evidence from that time. Now, in our podcast, uh, we're going to show you that a lot of the research being done by actually from archaeologists is challenging their chronology. So, also a lot of things they state as absolute facts are based on theories and are not proven besides for the scant evidence that they're based on. Right, which, by the way, is a common theme among all these secular sciences where they'll list theories as facts and then assume that if you disagree with it, you're crazy. And then 10 years later, the entire scientific theory will change. And then the new one, you're crazy if you don't hold of it. Now, obviously, we have an objective standard of what we accept as fact uh, given in the Torah. And the Torah has remained consistent throughout while science continuously changes. And yet every generation of quote-unquote scientists claim people who hold the Torah are crazy because we know what we're talking about. Now, this doesn't mean that the whole field is useless and they haven't found anything. I think a good example for this would be a jigsaw puzzle. Let's say you have a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle um, and you find three of the pieces, right? You don't have the other 10,000, but you found three of the pieces and you put them together and it's showing like a little bit of a green area. So you go, well, if you make a, one statement, there are certainly pieces that are green and something in the picture of the puzzle is green. So we can all agree with that. However, if you then go and start claiming what the pictures are of the other 9,000, uh, you know, 997 pieces are, that's obviously a leap. So I think that's what a person has to be very careful when he reads archaeology and he's presented with archaeological facts. He has to really understand what did they find, what are they extrapolating from that, and what are they assuming based on what they did not find. So that, I think, is, is a good way to understand what the methods of archaeology is when they say there is no archaeological evidence of the exodus, there is no archaeological evidence of the conquest of the land of Israel 40 years later. You have to understand what they're saying is we have not found the archaeological evidence to back that up for the time periods that we assume it is based on the periods that we dig, which we assume match those time periods. Now, there is there is one more uh, field, which we just want to cover very quickly, which is population estimates. So a few of the questions we mentioned were based on population estimates. So let's just talk about, well, how do they get these estimates? Is it like, well, we found, you know, 20,000 graves, so there's probably 20,000 people. Is it, we found an entire city and this is how many people can survive in it? Let's just see exactly what it's talking about. So this is, comes from a Slate article, um, also written recently, entitled, How Do Archaeologists Estimate the Size of Ancient Populations? Now, here's the first sentence. Fieldwork and guesswork. If archaeologists are lucky, they might uncover written documents on papyrus or stone tablets, as we mentioned from Joshua Berman, 99% of the papyrus of Egypt have not been found, uh, at least, that's according to what they assume, um, that shed light on the makeup of long-lost civilizations. Estimations based on residential densities are also common practice. There are homes you find, the more people, the more homes you find, the more people live there. So one of the methods of population estimates is, well, let's see how many homes we find. So let's say we find 10 homes. So then what can they do with that information? So the article continues. Architectural features distinguish residential from civic structures. The latter are larger and more ornate and make it possible for archaeologists to establish a density estimate across a sample area. For example, 25 homes per hectare. Hectare is 100 meters by 100 meters, for example. Then they guess how many people lived in each household on average. If no records are available to illuminate domestic arrangements, researchers study modern village populations in the same area to arrive at rough estimates. Perhaps four people per home. Then the archaeologists multiply the number of individuals per household by the households per hectare, and again, by the total settlement area. So um, I don't know if you're keeping track of how many assumptions are being made here, but let's say they find 
again, 10 houses. So then they assume, well, if there's 10 houses here, there's probably this many houses in the village. Then they go, well, how many people lived here? Well, I have no idea. Well, nowadays there's about four people per house. So let's assume they had four people per house. Okay, um, and let's assume that there's this many houses, and then let's just do the multiplication. That's probably how many they have. Now, obviously, all those numbers could be completely off. You really have no idea. It also depends how much of the things you found. If you've only found 2% of the archaeology in the area, in other words, you've only found 2% of the structures, uh, to estimate the other 98% based on this is, is obviously an extreme stretch. And even within the estimations themselves of how many people, you have a wide range, even among the experts, of how many. And the numbers change every year of how many people per home they estimate, from anywhere from three to eight by the estimations that I've seen. Now, obviously, three to eight, if you multiply that over a thousand houses, will lead to huge variations in the population estimates. No matter the methodology, population estimates always involve broad assumptions. From evidence drawn from an ancient census can be unreliable. Some omitted women, slaves, and children, and we only have access to incomplete records of others. As a result, figured, figures issued by different research teams often vary widely. For example, estimations for ancient Alexandria range from less than 100,000 to almost a million. So it's very clear what the problems with population estimates from those times are. They're based on extreme assumptions. So now, so two of the problems uh, that people have with the 600,000 Jews leaving Egypt from other verses in the Torah was the fact that it said that uh, not, uh, you know, 600,000 uh, men of 20 to 60 would make uh, the Jewish people not the smallest of all nations, but the largest of all nations. Well, again, that's assuming the population sizes. If they're incorrect about the population sizes, then it's very possible that the Jewish people were the smallest of all nations. Now, I also want to point out, if they don't, if you don't believe in Torah, fine, different conversation. But if you're somebody who believes in Torah and are reinterpreting the numbers based on your population estimates, you really have to ask yourself the following question. We know that Torah is written by God. If you're from Jewish person, you believe the Torah is written by God. Now, which is more likely to be true? a written account of what happened or your assumptions based on what you found 3,000 years later. Obviously, the written account by God would be a more accurate number. So when God is telling you, we left with 600,000 and we are the smallest of all nations, that's far better evidence than the couple things you found and the rampant assumptions that you're running with. So again, we listed three archaeological problems that were largely brought by the academics to attack the number of 600,000. The lack of archaeological record of slaves leaving and the travels, the fact that the Pesukim described the Jews as the smallest nation, and the fact that the Pesukim described the inability of the Jews to fully inhabit Eretz Israel, all suggesting a smaller size. Now, in terms of the lack of archaeological record, we've already seen that there's a lack of archaeological record for almost everything. So to assume that the lack of archaeological record would have a question on the Torah's account of what happened is ridiculous. It just basically means you don't believe the Torah's account in the first place. It's not you're using archaeology to say that probably the Torah meant something else. Uh, if you believe in Torah and you're using this type of archaeology to change your understanding of Torah, I think what's more likely to be true is you don't believe in Torah. And then in terms of the other two questions based on population estimates, well, the population estimates of the time are based on extreme amount of assumptions, which really have no basis, especially given the problems of the archaeological evidence that we have. In now, other words, a yeah. lot of the assumptions, sorry, a lot of the assumptions are based on, well, we found this many houses, therefore there must be this many people. We've already shown three examples of entire empires, which were lost. Now, assuming each of those empires had, let's say, a million people, 
you've lost a million people right there based on your population estimates because you didn't know that entire empire existed. Okay, so that's all assuming that the Jewish people leaving Egypt had no supernatural um, characteristics and they would have left an archaeological record like any other population moving through an area. Now, this is something that anybody who has any knowledge of the Jewish tradition would immediately go, hmm, I don't think they left in a natural manner. I don't think they left in a way that would leave archaeological evidence like any other people. So, for example... Uh, the Pasuk in Dvarim says, Hashem tells the Jewish people that your clothing didn't wear out and your feet didn't swell up like dough from all the walking for 40 years. Now, the academic, you know, puts on his academic hat and goes, hmm, uh, how's it possible that clothing lasted 40 years? I mean, even modern clothing doesn't last for 40 years, and they had ancient clothing. Um, so obviously, nobody in their right mind in the Jewish tradition holds that this was natural, right? So the Rashi points out that the Anane covered the clouds of glory that the Jewish people traveled with, um, used to wash their clothing and press it uh, and keep it fresh which is what Hashem's telling him, that I did this miracle for you, that I didn't allow your clothing to wear out for 40 years. But what about when they outgrew their clothing, Avi? So Rashi accounts for that also. Rashi brings the Medrash from Yilkut Shimoni that their clothing would actually grow with them as they would grow. And he says, like the snail, as some of you may know from our Trilas podcast, the shell of a snail grows with it uh, as it gets older. So, so too the clothing did. Um, now, of course, the academic is sitting there scratching his head going, mm, well, our last dig did not yield any magically growing clothing, so I don't think that that's possible. But again, the from Jew understands that we believe in uh, supernatural events, especially regarding the leaving of Egypt. So asking us questions, assuming that there was not supernatural events that are already recorded in our tradition, seems to be a very silly way of dealing with a topic. So what about the graves? Wouldn't they have found graves stretched out over their entire travels as people were dying throughout the Midbar? The entire generation died out. You should have 600,000 graves stretched in a line from Mitzrayim all the way to Canaan. So interesting you should ask that, Mati. There's actually Yerushalmi um, that says the follows, that every Erev Tishabov, since there was a decree against the population in the desert, uh, where they all had to die uh, during the 40 years. The entire population of the desert had to die in the desert because of their sins of the golden calf, and then it sealed it with the spies. Um, so every Erev Tishabov, Maisha would say, everybody dig your grave and go in it. So they would have one area where everybody would dig a grave and hop on in. Now, anybody who would die would obviously just be buried there. Some of them would live, and they would make their way to the next Erev Tishabov, where they would follow the same practice. So you really uh, only have 40 gravesites. Yes, we would have 40 gra gravesites spread throughout the desert, uh, and it's unclear if they had mass graves or each one had their own, you know, little plot. Either way, you're talking about 40 gravesites spread over an area of hundreds of thousands of square miles. Uh, it's very, very unlikely that you would have chanced upon one of these abnormal gravesites. Especially since people aren't just digging randomly in the desert hoping to find bones. <laughs> right. Unfortunately. Now, uh, one last question. What about the diapers I brought up? What about all their garbage that they would have thrown? Shouldn't that have been strewn across the desert? Well, luckily for us, we have a tradition about that also. So this is from Rashi in Bamidbar. He says that, uh, it's actually from Yushalmi also, that Dun used to travel last in the movement of the camps, and they were the largest population, and they used to be pick up all the things that the other Shvatim, the other tribes, used to drop. So again, minimizing the, the, minimizing the, 
footprint of the Jewish people as they traveled through the desert. You also have to remember they were traveling in floating clouds, which we know through tradition also flattened mountains and, and helped them get over, uh, travel long distances in very short times. We're not talking about a natural movement. Nothing about Yetzirah Mitzrayim was natural. So to ask questions that are based on natural assumptions, such as, well, wouldn't they need a lot of food? Or I also want to point out that these are not legends that are made up later to answer questions. These traditions are were in our tradition far before there was any archaeological question or anybody questioning the Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. So these aren't uh, explanations that are, uh, you know, established just to answer problems. These were already in our tradition. Now, you can't ask a question on a tradition by ignoring what the tradition says. Um, because again, it's not, it's not a question on the tradition if you're not dealing with the facts tradition gave. If you incorporate the facts of the tradition and go, well, I don't think those facts could be true because of the, a, you know, question ABC, that's one thing. To ignore the facts that the tradition is claiming and then go, well, I have a question. What about A, B, and C? And A, B, and C was already answered by the tradition itself. That's obviously a very, very silly way to ask questions on any a stated fact. Right. It'd be like if I said, I boated across Lake Michigan for three days. Boated? Boated? I boat. Yeah, I boated. Boated. Booted. <laughs> I traveled. Shipped. I, I shipped. I sailed. I, oh, that's a good one. I, it wasn't a sail. It was a rowboat. And, uh, Road. and I said, and I was able to feed myself because I packed away a ton of food and I had a, a mini fridge that was, that was able to, uh, that was solar, solar, uh, solar run. And then you ask on me, well, I think it's impossible to travel three days without any food and it's impossible to get food in Lake Michigan. And also, even if you had a fridge, how would he power it? There was no outlets in the thing. So obviously it's not a question on me because you're ignoring half my statement. So Chazal and the Tarsh of Alpeh is half the statement of the Tarsh of Achsav. In fact, it's, it's a lot more. It's like 99% of the, of the Tyra is made up of the Tarsh of Alpeh. So to ignore Chazal and then ask questions on the Tarsh of Achsav is the same ridiculous as asking that kind of question on my story. Now, we're saying ignoring Chazal. I'm pretty sure these people are unaware of Chazal. Even the ones who claim to be believers and claim to be trying to uh, represent Tyre True Faith, they generally are uh, Amaratim, ignorant to an extreme, and don't know any of these Chazal in the first place, and that's why they ask these questions. And we're going to see that very soon. Uh, And just one last point that everybody has to ask themselves whenever they hear one of these questions— you have to differentiate between questions which would have been available to the Rishonim and questions which would not. So there's a difference in strength between a question that comes up, let's say, based on a scientific finding that we found today, which they, not a finding, a scientific, let's say, thing which we have today, which they didn't have back then. For example, we can explain, let's say, how lightning came or how rainbows came about or how different things came about. And you ask a question based on that and based on something that the people back then would have known. So population estimates, our, a question based on that, right? So we're asking, well, wouldn't they have had to have much less people? Because based on our findings, we think they had less people. Uh, the Rishinim, especially the Gemara, would have known how many people were able to survive in these kind of places. And also how many people were in these places. They'd have a better guess than we would because they were closer to that point. So a lot of the questions asked on the on like how they could have had so many people is like logistic questions. Like, well, if they had so many people, how could they have fed so many people? Or, or they didn't have good numbers because of X, Y, and Z. But all these kind of questions are questions that Chazal and the Rishinim would have been bothered by if they were good questions. It, there's nothing new we're bringing to the table. We're actually bringing not just not new stuff. We're bringing terrible guesses based on 2,000 years later. Right, in other words, to flush it out, if in the time of Chazal it was, it was inconceivable to feed 30,000, 40,000 people, 
then they would have known. It's not such a hard question to go, well, how did the Torah feed 600,000 people? So take, for example, uh, example the question of inhabiting the land of Israel. Uh, Chazal know how big Eretz Yisrael was. They also know how many people it would take to inhabit it. Uh, they lived there. Uh, why wouldn't they be able to ask, well, 600,000 people do- seems like more than enough to inhabit it, uh, is unclear why they wouldn't be able to ask that question. From the fact they didn't must be they didn't find it a good question. You don't have any more info than they did in regards to that question. In fact, you have a lot less. Right. In fact, you have a lot less info than they did uh, because they actually lived in times where population sizes were smaller uh, and the technology was fairly, you know, similar between Chazal's time and the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and yet they were not bothered by these questions. Uh, so the only reason why you are is because either you don't believe the Rishonim knew what they were talking about or knew how to think, um, or you think you're smarter than them. Either way, those aren't questions that any from Jew would ask. Right. So needless to say, these archaeological questions are are the weakest of the weak questions, and to take the Torah non-literally and suggest anything other than what the Torah said based on them is ridiculous, but it's also uh, perfectly on par for the academic biblical scholar's mind. Now let's get to the next group of questions, which which are mostly based on mathematical problems. For example, there's a lack of time required to produce that amount of people. We know they went down to Mitzrayim with 70 people, and now they're 600,000 after only 200 years. How did that, or after 400 years, or whatever, 210 years, how did that happen? Um, The next problem is that the firstborns in the count totaled 20,000. Now, if you have 600,000 adult males to have 20,000 firstborns, that seems much too low. 22,000 firstborns. Yeah, 22,000, around 20,000. That seems much too low. And the last question is, in the censuses between the first and 40th year, we find that Shimon dropped 37,000 people from about 57,000 to about 20,000. And Menashe increased his numbers by 20,000. So how did that happen naturally? Populations don't change ever. Come on, Monty. Over only 40 years, that's, yeah, a little bit, a little bit crazy. So, so... The 600,000 must not have been true. Now, a couple of you may be thinking, well, aren't you guys straw manning? Nobody really holds these things. Nobody would ever ask these questions. Well, let me tell you, you're wrong. Not only would they ask these questions, sorry, not only are there people who would ask these questions, the top people involved in the field of biblical criticism or biblical studies, even in the so-called from world, so from Tyra Academia, are asking these questions and coming up with these conclusions. So there's a, a professor whose name is uh, jo- Josh Berman, Joshua Berman, Professor Joshua Berman. Now, he wrote a book called Animamim, which is a book of the 13, uh, 13 uh, uh, principles of faith in the Jewish people. Uh, and he has a bit of a radical take on a lot of them, including the story of the Exodus and how many people actually left Egypt. Uh, now, this book was published by Magid Publishing, or Corn Publishers, which they produce works by Rabbi Sachs, they put out books by Reb Soloveitchik, um, they put out a lot of popular Tanakhs, the Corn Tanakh. Now, they put out a book from this man, Joshua Berman, uh, he calls himself a rabbi, but I don't, I don't think he is, Professor Joshua Berman, about the amount of Jews who left Egypt. It covers a bunch of topics, but this is one of the chapters. So he asks the first question we mentioned, that you would need a crazy childbirth rate in order to go from 70 to 600,000, which he says, and this is a quote from his book, a phenomenon unmentioned by the Torah. That's hmm. on page 36 of Ani Mamin. Unmentioned by the Torah that the child birth rate was phenomenal. Well, let's see. The Pasuk in Shemai says, They multiplied incredibly. The Tamale Arzasam. 
in order to fill the land of Egypt. And Rashi says, Vyishritsu, on the Pasuk, on the word Vyishritsu, that they, they swarmed, Shayoldis Shisha Bekaramecha, that they were giving birth to six people at once. Now, Rashi isn't making this up. This comes from the Medrash. Um, and on the word Paru, that they, they were fruitful, he says, Shalayafilu Nishaseim Vlaimesu Kashayim Katanim, that they didn't have any, uh, stillbirth or any, um, what are they called? Uh, miscarriages. Miscarriages. And none of their kids died in, uh, as children. Now, not only that, uh, if you're thinking, well, that's Rashi, Rashi's kind of mystical, you know, he likes throwing in these uh, legends. Well, the Ibn Ezra, perhaps the most uh, straightforward, so-called rational um, interpreter of the Torah, also writes, and he says, what, I've seen myself women give birth to four, and doctors say you can even give birth to seven at a time, and that's probably what was happening. Um, the Rosh also brings a Pirish of Rosadino and another, so to speak, so-called rationalist, that this Pusik actually hints through Gematria to this idea that they they were born six at a time, six in one stomach. Uh, the Relbag also, one of the greatest rationalists of all time, also says that they had Pirvirvia in a way that was unheard of uh, up until the point that they got all the way up to 600,000. Now, the reason why all these rationalists are saying this medrash, this legend, so to speak, you know, this kind of mystical legend, a mystical medrash that it was six at a time, is because the psukim say they went from 70 to 600,000. There was a special bracha given from Hashem to Avram to get from 70 to 600,000. And the Pusik says they had, the Pusik seems to imply they had an unnatural birth rate because there's a specific Pusik mentioning how they spread like wildfire, uh, in terms of their reproduction. So this is not, uh, this is not like a hint in the Pusik. This is as Pusha Pshat as you can get. Yes, Hashem was supernaturally guiding the Jewish people. This entire process of going to Egypt and leaving Egypt was a supernatural creation of a nation. The fact that they went from 70 to 600,000 is the least of the miracles of the Yetzirah Mitzrayim. The fact that Joshua Berman not only asks, well, wouldn't they need a crazy childbirth, and ignores not only the Pasuk, but our tradition, but the fact that he thinks that's a question on the story is really reflective of his A, thinking ability, and B, so-called adherence to Torah. And it, I don't know if it, obviously, probably nobody from Magad Publishing is listening, but anybody who buys their books or thinks their books are are somehow uh, representative of Torah thought, look at the author. They publish this guy as if this is somehow remotely related to authentic Torah. It's bad Torah and bad thinking, and you're just going to see more of it as we go on. Right, so now he goes on and, and lists the next question, which was the census drop-off from Shimon losing a lot of people, and the increase from Menasha. And he says, I quote, Nowhere does the Torah explain how or why Shimon and Menasha uh, had these drop-offs and increases. Were these actual figures, they would beg explanation. Well, the, the, first of all, I'm not sure why they beg explanation, because I'm not sure why numbers can't change over 40 years. But also Rashi... Yeah, I don't know if, he, I don't know if he's aware, but um, between the years 1939 and 1945, the Jewish population dropped around 6 million. So... Um, seems like populations could change uh, fairly quickly at a lot, depending on what's going on there. Well, especially if there's something like a plague, which would have killed out a lot of a specific shavit. I don't know. Was if there a plague? In I don't the... Does the Torah mention that, Joshua Burden? I don't know. Well, He's look, a biblical scholar. He would he know. Would, he would know, probably. So so let's see Rashi. So Rashi, talking about the Chisarin, talking about the lacking from Shevet Shimon, he says that the lacking came from that plague that affected mostly Shimon, or almost entirely Shimon, and that plague was caused by the, the story of Zimri, who took Cosby, and Zimri was, of course, the Nasi, the prince of Shevet Shimon, and Cosby was the, the princess of, of the non-Jewish nation. Um, some of Farsham actually explained that she drugged his drink in order to get him to sleep with her, but uh, that's, that's a different story. Now, 
that plague that followed killed 24,000 people. And Rashi says those 24,000 people were from Shimon. So it's just unfortunate that Joshua Berman forgot about the plague and, and didn't read Rashi, which is what every single Jew knows how to understand a Pusik is you, you read Rashi. No, but again, it's, it. it's not just Rashi. The, the Torah tells us the census changes. Okay. It also tells us an event from the Nasi of the Shevet, the leader of the tribe where the numbers changed. And it also mentions the events of them being punished and a significant amount of them dying in the plague. This isn't some crazy medrash. This is the Pushat Pshat. This is the simple reading of the Psukim. Come on, Berman. And not only that, he's saying things like, Nora does the Torah explain. Now, we happen to know the Rashi. And I think most people who went to kindergarten in Chumash uh, knows this story and knows why Shimon dropped off numbers. But if somebody else is reading that book who doesn't know better, he's going to trust Magid Publishing. It's a Jewish publisher. It's a so-called from publisher. This guy is supposed to be an expert on Chumash, a rabbi, a professor. This person's going to believe what this guy is sell- selling. And this guy is just lying. He's either lying or he doesn't have Chumash. Either way, you shouldn't be writing a book about Chumash if you don't know basic stories in Chumash. Now, we don't exactly need an explanation for this because it's natural that one Shevet would increase in size tremendously. Uh, but just in case you want an explanation, so Yaakov blesses Yosef before he dies. And he told Yosef about his two sons, Ephraim and Menasha, that they would be like Reuben and Shimon. And it ends up that the number of Ephraim and Menasha pretty much equal either exactly or almost exactly the numbers from Reuben and Shimon at the end of the Midbar. But also the bracha that he gave him was v'yid gu l'rayv. That men- that- Menasha, sorry, you should multiply like fish. And Rashi says v'yid gu k'dagim al like these fish, yaparim v'ravim v'ein ein har that they have tons of kids and nine har is not shelling them. So there you see in the bracha that there's a reason to naturally explain based on the Pesukim why Menasha would have a greater increase than the other Shvatim. Now, again... If you assume we're talking about a regular population during a regular time period, and there is no Hashem, then obviously you can ask, well, how did the numbers rise and drop? And, I mean, in this case, I don't even know, you don't even really need appeal to supernatural, but either way, the question makes more sense. When you're dealing with the Torah describing the supernatural formation of a nation, none of these questions make sense anyways, regardless of if there's a naturalistic, easy explanation. The questions just don't make sense because, again, we're talking about a supernatural formation of a nation. There are no assumptions you could run with. There are no precedents. You're dealing with whatever the Torah tells you is the most likely because there is no other model. You've never seen a supernatural formation of a nation. That's besides the fact that the Torah is clearly explaining these things and none of these require supernatural events. Now, we mentioned earlier that maybe he just didn't know this. He did know this because he even mentions it, but he mentioned something very silly about it. Right, so he basically explains that the numbers in Torah were symbolic, and we're going to get more into that in just one second. But, so he explains, so why was there a great rise in Menashe and a great dropping in Shimon? So he says, quote, It is not a coincidence that we have in the book of Numbers positive stories about the tribe of Menashe and negative stories about the tribe of Shimon. Due to these events, maybe that Menashe received a quote-unquote raise in numbers and Shimon a quote-unquote penalty. In other words, symbolically, they lost numbers, and symbolically, they gained numbers because of their good and bad actions. Right, so instead of Shimon actually doing negative things and Menasha actually having positive qualities and the Torah actually punishing Shimon by taking away numbers through death through plague and Menasha receiving a rise because of a special bracha based on their positive qualities no that's just too hard to understand so Joshua Berman says no 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 there are I guess fake stories or or 
you know, positive stories about the Tribunasha and po- a negative story about the Tribunasha, not because they actually were positive or negative or anything. And then there's a symbolic raise in numbers and a symbolic lessening of numbers. That's more rational than an actual raise in numbers because they actually got a bracha to have a larger population and an actual lessening of numbers because there was an actual plague because they actually did something wrong. Right. So these are the super strong questions that cause them to lack the amuna in the fact that there were 600,000 people. They say couldn't have been. And they offer two explanations of why the Torah says there were, in fact, 600,000 men right, that left again, the it, if there weren't real numbers. It's very nice that you have questions, but the Torah says 600,000. So let's see what they do with that. So they have two answers, and the one is symbolism, and that's the one we're going to start with first. So Joshua Berman goes in this, this derech. And this seems to be the uh, mostly the consensus among academics are moving towards consensus that this is the Torah is using symbolic numbers. And so how does he prove that? So he starts with, we see that the Torah uses symbolic numbers, as in the case of 70 going down, down to Mitzrayim. So he immediately starts that even the 70 were symbolic. So how does he know it's symbolic? Well, he has some genius questions, which I don't think you guys will have ever heard. So you're going to hear it here first from Joshua Berman. First of all, the Torah only says 69 names. Oh my I, how, how did I not realize that? How did no, Rishenim not I'm realize that? It's a good that? thing he went to university because uh, the, the regular reading would not yield that it's less than 70. I mean, you'd have to use basic arithmetic. That is really tough. Man, we've been lacking for 2,000 years of commentary of Joshua Berman. We, we needed that because those numbers were tough, 69 numbers. Okay. And the other question, well, weren't there also women and children? And the, the Torah only lists... 69 men or, or 67 men and two women or 68 men and one woman there must have been more women and more children so must be it's symbolic because th- those are two really strong questions which i'm sure you guys have never heard of it and then he his symbolism that he chooses is that if you look at the um if you look at the four mothers each of them have kids uh in divisibles of seven um you have Rachel having seven and uh billa having 14 and leah and zilpah together having 49 even though each of them individually don't have division of seven but let's just forget about that because it doesn't really work in the theory but that's fine that's you know professor joshua berman has come with a great commentary on what the symbolism of these numbers are so and then he this is another quote and this is just a fantastic quote we have to learn to read the torah in its ancient context and when we don't we ask questions that no one ever asked before ever Seriously, nobody ever asks these questions because we're living much later than the time of the Torah and because we have an anachronistic way of thinking and writing and we are not even aware of it. We don't even realize that when we read numbers, we try to match the numbers together. That's crazy. And that's the problem with how we learn the Torah. That's Joshua Berman on on, uh, on this podcast that he was on. Just, a, oh my gosh, Joshua Berman, amazing stuff. Now, uh, obviously, as, as anybody who's read it, the Chumash with commentaries, uh, a very, very classic uh, question from commentaries is, hey, doesn't this contradict the numbers listed earlier? Hey, how did they get so many people? Uh, hey, it says 70, but really there's only 69 listed. That You know, that is not Joshua Berman's question. Think, that question I, is I literally he, asked uh, by every single commentator on the Pusik throughout the history of uh, Torah learning. Yeah, Berman probably has a chip in his shoulder because he uh, flunked third grade. He flunked the third grade Rashi Chumash test and uh, therefore has a vendetta against Yiddishkeit. Now, um, uh, also his question of there were obviously women and children, so it couldn't have been just 70. Uh, the Pasuk says these are the 70 souls that went down to Egypt besides for the women and children. So I don't I don't know. Is, was he just saying the, the Torah is saying this? Like, who? what is his question based on? The, the Torah itself speaks out. It's not actually 70. Um, now, to support his idea that numbers in the Torah could be symbolic, the Nitziv says that the 70 is clearly symbolic here. 
well, the reason why the 70 is clearly symbolic here is because the Torah itself said there's more than 70 and then picked the number 70 to describe the people coming down. So he explains uh, how the 70 equals the 70 other nations. Uh, but either way, it's very clear that the 70 is symbolic because the Torah says there were more than 70. Wait, and sorry, let me, just, let me just clarify. It's not symbolic that there are 70 of these um the ones People who listed, who, right? Who are listed? The ones that are not listed, who the Torah explicitly mentions, existed. So why does the Torah keep on saying seventy went down to Mitzrayim? The Torah itself is telling us there's more than seventy. So the reason the Torah uses the number seventy instead of however many women and children there were is because seventy is symbolic, right? Not the, that the number it's using is purely symbolic. There's also a big difference to extend from when the Torah says seventy went down and there were really more to saying seventy went down and there were really way less. So. um I, I, when you say 70 went down, that is true. You can count the main people. So like 70 heads of family went down. You can say something like that. Uh, to say 70 went down and only 25 went down, um, that's not what the Nativ is saying at all. They're saying 70, we call it 70 went down, even though the Torah says there were more than 70. Just like we call it 600,000 Jews left Egypt, even though we know it was around 2 million. Now, how does this help with, with 600,000? Does he offer a nice symbolic... Uh... A number of 600,000. So no, he says, I don't really know what it is. But my aim here is not to explain the meaning of the numbers. It may well be that we do not understand how to uncover the meaning of these numbers. My point is to show that when taken on its own terms, the Torah seems to suggest that the total number to leave Egypt was not 600,000, but much fewer. So, so when, when the Torah says, says 600,000 left besides not counting the men and women, it obviously, I mean, the women and children, it obviously was trying to say less than 600,000. When it took three separate census counts uh, and came up with the numbers uh, perfectly equaling um, uh, but down to the coin number that they collected, uh, obviously he was not trying to say there was 600,000. Uh, I just want to ask Josh Berman, how could the tire have said it meant 600,000? Did it have to go like, no, I'm not trying to be symbolic. It really is 600,000. I really did just count them. We really did just separate them by tribe. We even took it down to 603,750. Uh, did it have to do that? Like, what did it have to do exactly to to show Josh Berman that the terrorists trying to tell us these are real numbers? Um, I think it's just another classic case of he's an archaeologist. If his field is not conclusive, then he himself, you know, is not contributing that much to the knowledge of the world. And therefore, obviously his field is so conclusive and the facts that his field comes up with is uh, obviously facts. And therefore we have to interpret, uh, reinterpret the Torah. Uh, the rest of it is uh, not so important how exactly you do it. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be uh, logically consistent or textually consistent. It just, again, has to work because the archaeology is obviously true. Right, so now let me just read. This is how he concludes the section. This is on page 52. And he says, A final note about this approach to the number of individuals who left Egypt, and it concerns a conspicuous but pervasive silence within our rabbinic sources. We believe, correctly, that the Bali Hamedrish and the medieval commentators were careful readers of the biblical texts. Above, I post about a dozen questions that arise from the figures listed in the Book of Numbers, as they relate to one another, and as they relate to other passages in the Torah. Those are all questions that are there on the surface of the text and are obvious, and perhaps even troubling when they are recognized. Remarkably, there is precious little treatment of any of them in the entire corpus of classical rabbinical literature. <laughs> Very little. Wow. I, I don't even... Where is it coming from? Why this blind spot? Well, I'm sure that the entire corpus of what he's read, it wasn't there. <laughs> or maybe whatever English summer he read, it wasn't in there. But again, no, it's, he, he's obviously an authority enough that Magid Publishing would publish one of his works. So then he says, I would suggest that the blindness is in our... In our eyes, and not theirs. I think that's probably the best sentence in, in the entire book, is that the blindness of the corpus of literature is in, it, in his eyes. We view the world through the prism of empiricism, logical feasibility, and realities that are quantitatively and statistically analyzed. So we view things as if they have to make sense, while the, the genius um, Rishonim, who were undoubtedly geniuses, 
didn't view things logically, and didn't care about numbers. This lens is a modern one, and one that was unfamiliar to our forefathers, the giants of the rabbinic tradition. It was so unfamiliar that it did not even cross their minds that these are the type of questions that one could ask in the text. I mean, besides the fact that literally every single <laughs> one of your normal questions was explicitly asked by almost every single one of the Mavarshim, but... Uh, Okay, so that, that's, that's what he says. And then there's just one other aspect which is just very funny. So the 600,000 is actually used, um, by numerous of the Rishinim to explain Rishasaram. There's a Machlegis Rishinim, how, how big Rishasaram has to be. And, uh, some of the Rishinim say it has to be 600,000. And they base this on the number of men in Egypt. So the, the Gemara, the Gemara says that we, uh, the, we learn out the, the, the Sugya of Rishasaram. We learn out the Lachis, the parameters of the public domain for Shabbos. Uh, from the camp of the Jewish people uh, in the desert. Now, there are some Rishayim who extend the obligation of Rosh Hashanah to include it has to be somewhere that 600,000 men or 600,000 people are walking through. Uh, the reason why they say that is obviously is because it's universal in our tradition. There were actually 600,000 people who left Egypt at a minimum. Uh, now, this is what he says about it. Additionally, there was a common perception that the concept of Rosh Hashanah was defined by the size of the population of Israel present in the desert. No authority holds this to be the case. Most Roshonim define Rosh Hashanah without reference to a specific number of people at all. Tosvos and other Ashkenazi poskim did, but their use of the number itself is instructive. Tosvos is the first to recognize that there were not 600,000 people in the desert. There were 600,000 men of fighting age. <laughs> oh my goodness, I wonder if there's a Pasuk like that that says these are the people who left Egypt, 600,000 besides for the women and children. Tosvos was probably the first person in Jewish history to realize that it wasn't actually 600,000 people who left Egypt. Now, Tysus explains why we learn out only 600,000, even though there are a lot more, and he says basically because uh, because since the number given is 600,000, that's what the Torah is trying to teach us. When it gives us that number, those are the numbers we use for halachic, uh, limud, for halachic exegesis. It's not that, obviously, that that's actually how many people were there. This is not Tysus Chiddush. He might have been the first one to speak it out. It's not such a complicated question. It's obviously, all, it's all the Rishonim knew it. Right. Yeah, now, I, I love how he says, no yeah. authority holds the population of Israel in the desert represent Rosh Hashanah. And then, literally two sentences later, he says, well, Tosavus and other Ashkenazi poskim did. Now, it's not just other Ashkenazi poskim. If you look at the Bir Halacha on Simon Shin Mem Hay in Orchaim, he lists uh, at least 10 Rishonim, um, who hold that 600,000 is an essential part of the definition of Rosh Hashanah. Now, you also have to understand, this allows us to be lenient. So, since you need 600,000 to make a proper Rishas Rabbim, which is actually what we rule like halachically, which obviously he doesn't mention, um, allows us to have Erevs, to have an Erev in a place that otherwise would be considered Rishas Rabbim. That allows people to carry in what outside, without this, you know, criteria of 600,000 would be a full-fledged Rishas Rabbim, which means we're not only, there's not only one opinion who holds that we can learn 600,000 from the Jews in Egypt. We hold it to the point where we allow carrying in places, assuming there were 600,000 people. Not only that, assuming it was the criteria for the halacha. Now, also, he's trying to set it up as if the other Rishayim who don't hold its part of the Kansas Rabbim don't hold there were 600,000 people in the desert. Everybody agrees there are 600,000 people in the desert. The only discussion is, is that pertinent for Rishayim? But that's also something he tries to throw off again. 
I feel bad for anybody who doesn't know better and picks up this safer published so irresponsibly by Magid Publishing and thinks that this is representative of actual Torah thought. It is not. This is not a rabbi. This is a professor who is, a again, an astounding Amaret. Now, just as a side, what he's actually suggesting about the symbolic numbers is that you can take the Pesukim not literally, right? Because if a Pesuk says 600,000 Jews left Egypt and you go, that's a symbol— that's the definition of taking a Pusik, not literally. Uh, we're going to do a full podcast on when you could and when you couldn't. We already spoke about some of the rules in our podcast on uh, the age of the universe. Suffice it to say, uh, the scant archaeological evidence does not fit under anybody's definition of when you could or could not take a Pusik, not literally. Uh, and that would rule out the this, uh, this uh, suggestion right off the bat. But again, that would require Joshua Berman being aware of the Ishkafik uh, uh, principles behind when you could or could not take a Pusik literally, and also him caring that the fact that our tradition never took these Pusik not literally, or hold that it's even illegal, you know, from a terror standpoint to take Pusik not literally. Again, I'm not even suggesting malice. I am merely suggesting he's an Amaret. I've met him personally. Uh, you can see from his work here, uh, it's just not good Tyra. So now let's go to the second solution offered, which is that LF thousand, which is all the numbers have thousands in them, 600,000, all the individual numbers, you know, this tribe had 24,000, etc. So the word in Hebrew is Aleph. So they want to say maybe it's connected to the word Aluf, which means a clan, a troop, an officer, a family, and therefore you can significantly reduce. So instead of, let's say the Pusik said a certain tribe had uh, 20 LF and 500, instead of 20,500, it would be 20 clans equaling 500 people, or 20 families of 500 people. So this was first suggested by Flinders Petrie and has become popularized by Michal Shlomo Baron in, in a certain essay that he wrote suggesting this. And I've, I've seen it brought up a few times, so I thought it was worthy to point out. So this is obviously ridiculous. Anybody who reads the Pesukim can see that, that in context, these are clearly referring to numbers and not officers. So he gives examples of when aluf does mean clan. So for example, he brings down in the clans of Edom, right? Alufe Edom, right? So the word is alufe. And in Beratius and all the families of, of Aesop, when it says, Ela alufe ben Aesop, alufe this, alufe that. And Rashi and the commentators over there say, well, what does aluf mean over here? It means Rashi and Mishpachis. Because the word alufe something is obviously the clans of something. But when I say there's six, LF, and 500, obviously that's referring to thousands and not clans. All the examples that he gives of aluf meaning clan in context clearly mean clan, and then he tries to extend it to context where it clearly does not mean clan. And not only in context being clan, but all the commentators right that it means clan or officer, uh, yet those very same uh, commentators apparently couldn't realize that maybe our thing also means clan, and none of them mention that our 600,000 means 600 clans as opposed to 600,000. And not just the commentators, sorry, also the translators. Right. Also. And so he gives a, an example of where, well, if you use my chiddish, that elif actually means aloof, you actually are able to answer a certain question which 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 comes up in the Pesukim, where if you learn it as thousands, it becomes very problematic. And he brings up a Pesuk in Shmuel in Perak Vav, where it says that um, in a certain war, there was 70 men and 50 elif. Uh, sorry, 70 men and 50 elif men. So it sounds like it's 50,070 men, but the Pesuk doesn't really read very smoothly like that. And his questions aren't good questions, but the Rishonim all ask the question on the Pusik because the Pusik doesn't have a Vav. It doesn't say 50,070 men. It just says 50,070 men. Um, and, well, the Gemara is actually the first person to ask the question, and it gives an answer that it means 70 men who are like 50,000 men or 50,000 men who are like seven men. Um, the commentators on the Pusik, Rashi, the Barbanel, the Malbim, the Tzustavid, the Radak, literally every single commentary on the Pusik all explain the Pusik not to mean aloof, but they answer the question in other ways. 
again, generally like the Gemara answers the question. So they're all very aware of this question and gave answers to it. And the, those very same commentators, when it comes to our verses talking about the amount of uh, hundreds of thousands who left Egypt, make no such questions and no such answers to try to explain it away as not being actually 6,000. Now, obviously, besides just relying on Masar, we have actually very pointed questions on this shot. The, the shot, it's so ridiculous. It's, it's almost annoying that we have to spend time in the podcast dealing with it. But because people aren't able to, a lot of people aren't able to go through the source themselves. A lot of people aren't able to think through things so clearly. I, I think the bigger problem is a lot of people assume that if a person's an expert in a field, like he's a biblical scholar, or he's a professor, he probably is saying something that makes some sense and has some backing. Uh, they don't realize that it's not the case, doesn't have to be the case. Uh, the field of academia is almost who can say the stupidest thing um, and have the most people agree to it. Uh, so this follows that pattern very nicely. So there are a couple easy questions that you can ask. So, for example, if you follow the numbers, every time you add up enough hundreds to equal a thousand, it all of a sudden turns into another elif. So if you're doing math, well, that's obvious. Ten hundreds equal a thousand. Uh, if elif means clan or officer, um, so every a thousand people equal another clan or officer, uh, then you didn't help anything because there is, if there are six clans, each one having a thousand people, that's 6,000 the same way saying Sheish Elif is 6,000 right off the bat. Um, another problem is they take the, they literally take the Shkolim, right? So half, uh, Machzah the Shekel was the way they counted. They took a half shekel from the way they counted everybody. And when it lists the amount of gold or, uh, silver that they collected, um, the amount of silver they collected equaled as if 600,000 actual Jews gave half a shekel. Uh, that math obviously wouldn't work out if the 600,000 Jews are not literally 600,000. By the way, these questions are also questions on learning the numbers symbolically, or at least the second question is that the amount of silver that they collected from the mouse of shekel, which was used in the Mishkan, wouldn't work if these numbers were symbolic. Well, maybe it's a also. symbolic Mishkan or symbolic, symbolic Mishkan, gold. Symbolic and... silver. Yeah. Um, by the way, this... this Did, Nepal... I don't know, but I'm not sure if Joshua Berman knew that there was a Mishkan or... That they took the shkalim. So yeah, it's a, the 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 whole concept of a temple is uh, is mysteriously absent from the right. Bible um, in his reading. <laughs> there are no verses that even mention them using the silver for anything. Um, no, actually, he does hold the Mishkan because he holds that they stole it from the Egyptian pictures. Right, so, right. so he must hold to that. By the way, this this Baron is the same person. One of his questions on the six hundred thousand was that, uh, and I quote: "A diet of primarily real world mana, mon, per the tar count, could not have provided enough calories for even a fraction of these amount of people." Even if supplemented by fish and occasional meat, right? Because he, he's uh, he's confirmed from his uh, archaeology that the mun that came down from heaven was actually these uh, these trees that grew in one area of the desert. Um, so based on that, they didn't have enough for six hundred thousand. I mean, these people are real, uh, real, real, real geniuses at all areas. So that 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 takes care of the second attempt to answer up the six hundred thousand. And the third, which was perhaps my favorite, was that often in ancient times, kings would exaggerate the numbers of their army in order to scare and intimidate enemies. So maybe Hashem wanted to scare and intimidate the enemies, so he inflated and exaggerated the numbers of Jews leaving Mitzrayim so that yeah, people would be afraid. Obviously, the people of, of, of Canaan would be reading the Chumash, and when they read the Chumash and it said they counted 6,000 people, they'd be like, wow, that's a real big army. I guess we really have to be scared. And then when like 10,000 showed up, they were ready too scared to even fight. So that obviously... Yeah, um, that's, that's from Professor Richard Elliott Friedman. And I just want to point out that these same professors who are giving these uh, bogus, ridiculous, not thought out, um, ill-knowledgeable, unknowledgeable pshatim in Chumash are the same ones giving you your information in science um, and all areas that they come to ask questions on the Torah from. So I, I don't think it's a crazy stretch to say that the same way biblical scholars matched up with people who have been learning Torah in actuality 
know next to nothing. I don't think it's such a stretch to say that their conclusions in science are based on the same faulty thinking, uh, ignoring sources, and just assumptions and and who knows what else. So, and now I know probably some of you may be put off by how hard we're going against these people. You have to understand that these people come, uh, they're Amaratim. Not only that, they're preying on people who don't know any better, and they're trying to overturn traditions that we have in our Torah that we have in the Jewish people, that we've held up for thousands of years. And these people with no knowledge come and arrogantly cast aspersions on the entire Masara, on the entire tradition, calling them ignorant, calling the tradition, uh, they didn't think like we do. They just, things didn't have to make sense for them. And, and such arrogant uh, statements like that. And not only that, none of their conclusions are on the side of Amuna. All of their conclusions, oh, you think 600,000 Jews left Egypt? Well, let me tell you, it wasn't that, because we rationally know that it wasn't. If anybody with a with any sort of, uh, you know, mayach bekadkad, any with a brain in their head, understands that when a person grew up believing that 600,000 Jews left Egypt, and then somebody comes and tells them that you've been wrong, you've been told a lie your whole life, you don't think that will weaken as a muna in Yitzhiz Mitzrayim? Especially when the reason you're wrong is because the non-Jews are telling you you're wrong. Right. And these people are trying to filter into our tar world. And it's not like, oh, we're trying to shut them out because we just want to have simple, blind faith. They're coming into our tar world with stupid, irrational arguments, preying on the type of people who can't think out the answers, and that is incredibly wicked on their, their end. So it is our job, when since we could come and show the fallacy of their thinking, it is our job to come and embarrass them and show everybody how poor their thinking is and to realize that you don't need to trust them uh, when they come up with their conclusions. Now, I'm sure we've all had had experience of that person sitting in the corner of the shoal with his stack of printed out academic papers and a jargon which you don't really understand, quoting uh, quoting Rishinim using their English Englishified names which you don't really recognize, saying things which you've never really heard, but it sounds pretty good. And they always seem to be angry at the yeshiva system and, and Judaism in general. And Anybody who passes by, they try to ensnare in their in their pshatim. Oh, you heard you? You think the Zohar is real? Have, yeah. you, have you read what uh, Professor Johnson says about it? And like the rabbi is giving a speech, mentions six hundred thousand leave Egypt. Oh, and of course, six hundred thousand. Yeah. Don't yeah. you know they haven't found the diapers there? Um, so just just understand, there's nothing in those papers outside of words you don't understand. If you actually understand the content, we broke it down and presented them in an easier way so that anybody can understand it. Uh, there's nothing there. There's nobody greater than Armisera. Nobody could think better than Tzmiyacham and Armisera. Just trust in our tradition uh, and realize that, you know, when it says, uh, the only, I always like to say, the only medrash that's not literal is uh, if you there's if you, if you hear there's wisdom in the nations, believe it. Trust me, there's far less wisdom in the nations than you'd believe. Now, I just want to end on a, uh, on a, with a little devartar. So we say every, some people have the custom of saying this after davening every day. It's a mitzvah to remember it every day. Remember what a Malik did to you when you left Egypt. He met you on the road. And he ensnared and cut down and trapped all those who are straggling behind you. You were tired, you were weak. And you didn't fear Hashem. Now there's two explanations, either the Amalek didn't fear Hashem, or the people they cut down didn't fear Hashem. Now, I just want to say a couple things. The Amalek is the gematria of Suffolk, right? Because Amalek really cast doubt into the supremacy of the Jewish people, the message of the Yetzirah Mitzrayim. We also in the Jewish people have Amalekis. We have people who come in 
and try to cast doubt into every one of our traditions. Now, they're too ignorant to affect the strong, the knowledgeable, the Tmichamim, those who are in the system. So they try to cut down those who are tired from the exile, struggling, straggling behind the nation, and they cut them down with arguments that would only work on those who are straggling behind. Now, not only do they, not only are they preying on people who have problems with Yerushimayim, who have questions and doubts, but they themselves come with an absolute lack of Yerushimayim, because even if they held what they're saying is true, even if these Jewish academics, these Torah academics held what they're saying is true, which I believe in their mind they do, the fact that they can't tell that nobody's ever had a better davening, had more amuna after reading one of these articles, is the biggest proof that they have no Yerushimayim. They could not care less about Tyron Metzas, all they care about is casting doubt and casting um, aspersion, particularly against the yeshivish community, because for some reason there's a vendetta against it, and when they come to you, ignore them if you can't deal with them, or listen to our podcast, you know, all the answers to all their silly questions. I'm Avi Cohen. I'm Ati Cohen. And this is Jewish Thought Flow. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, compliments, please send them to jewishthoughtflow at gmail.com. We are more than happy to answer any questions and receive any compliments from the listeners. And don't be concerned. If you say something stupid, you will be roasted in the next podcast. Mm-hmm.